Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's Religion Podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. Yesterday's announcement by Boris Johnson of new coronavirus restrictions, which limit the number of people who can attend weddings to 15 and funerals to 30, was predictably vigorously welcomed by the Archbishop of Canterbury and other bishops. My own reaction was, what on earth are they welcoming? These restrictions will affect not only weddings and funerals, but will encourage the churches to further tighten freedom of worship, something they've been doing with tremendous and baffling vigour ever since the pandemic began. I spoke to Dr Gavin Ashenden, Holy Smoke's resident expert on church affairs, about what this means for both the Church of England and the Catholic Church in this country, both of which are, make no mistake about it, in an exceptionally fragile state. So, Gavin, when I read of these new restrictions on churches, weddings back to 15 people, funerals 30 people, these strange arbitrary numbers, I suddenly had a sinking feeling and a rather melodramatic response, I suppose, which is, it's all over. All over for the churches, that is, rather than Christianity. Because I've watched the churches, both Anglican and Catholic, not exactly struggle to recover from the restrictions that have been placed upon them, but go along meekly or even enthusiastically with the restrictions. We know that people have not returned to church in anything like the numbers that they were attending before. And now it seems as if those bishops of both churches who have been so perversely enthusiastic about embracing restrictions on their own freedom of worship, almost as if it's their own mission, now have an excuse simply to bolt the doors again. I don't mean that we'll necessarily go back to a situation where, you know, there are no public masses or no public acts of Anglican worship, but the thumbscrews will be tightened even further. Clergy will be strongly dissuaded from taking any initiatives that might conceivably go against the rather shaky COVID consensus embraced by the government, and institutional decline is gathering pace to the point where I'm not sure that Christianity in its current organised form is going to be sustainable after 2020. What do you think? One of the first things that all first-term students of the Greek New Testament get taught is that the word krisis in Greek doesn't just mean a crisis, it also stands for a moment of judgment. And so, although what you said sounds very dramatic and sad and rather rather threatening, I think, and some people listening will think, gosh, if Damien's right, we're in for a very, very bad time. An understanding of the history of the church teaches us that whenever a crisis comes, that part of the church which isn't up to the job folds away, comes under judgment, dries up. And a renewed church comes as a response to the judgment, to the crisis. So I think... The elements we can identify here are, are, first of all, why is the bureaucratic response what it is? Why are the bishops and the administrators of the churches behaving in such a compliant way in this particular culture? And that throws up the question about the church's self-understanding. In most of the previous centuries, the church has said that eternal life matters much more than this life. I've never forgotten the excitement 
as a 12-year-old listening to A Man for All Seasons when St. Thomas More says to Richard Rich, Richard, it, it says somewhere, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? But, but, but for Wales, Rich, he says, who sold his soul to become Chancellor of Wales. You don't hear the church saying to the world today, to our society, look, you might live uh, one year, five years, 10 years, 30 years longer in this body. But the thing you really need to worry about is whether you go to hell, purgatory or heaven and what happens when you stand in judgment. Now, that's been completely missing from the church's self-understanding and, and public pronouncements. So maybe at this point, the church is being invited to choose between being an arm of the health and safety culture, offering a, a slap of spirituality to people's self-becoming, or whether it's going to be faithful to what Jesus taught and practiced and to what the church has always aspired to down through the ages. So here we have a moment of crisis, a, a moment of judgment, and the church, I think, will divide. Well, Christians may indeed face that sort of choice. Do we go along with the civil authorities, and unfortunately the bishops seem to be part of the civil authorities these days, or do we find our own route to revival? The difficulty is that you were mentioning times in the past when the church has renewed itself, but those were in societies where most people were believers anyway. So the process of renewal was something much more natural than it would be today, when only a minority of people hold anything resembling conventional, orthodox, supernatural beliefs. So I think it'd be much more difficult for a revived Christianity to gain the audience it needs. Gosh, you know, I really don't agree with you at all. The, the details are, are wholly different in our society. But I think the, the paradigmatic patterns are the same. So it, it, it always comes down to, are you going to prioritise the, the immediate values of the society or the power structures you live in or where they come into conflict with the teachings of the gospel? Are you going to prioritise those? I mean, for example, at, at the moment, isn't it funny how the church for the last 50 years has prided itself on speaking truth to power? So when it comes to racism or economic equality, our right-on leaders have stood up and have been very happy to speak out politically and to challenge the status quo. You couldn't have a more pregnant moment for speaking truth to power when the whole scientific community is completely itself divided on what this virus means, what it's going to do, what's going to happen what are sensible and what are not sensible proportions. Um, and you would think at this point the church might say, actually, there are two views. One is very much not proven and the other gives more freedom to the human individual in the face of state control. We're going to opt for the one that prioritises the sanctity of, of anthropology, so to speak. But not at all. It's sided completely with the health and safety culture of part of the scientific community. So I don't think that the challenge it faces today in deciding what its value system is going to be is, is different in principle to any of the other moments where there's been a social, political, historical crisis and where essentially you have, if you like, the will to power uh, saying, doing, demanding one thing and the church doing another. I mean, you could go straight back to Bonhoeffer and, and Germany in 1930. It, it's the same principle. I think if we examine church history, we, we'd find that the paradigm is always the same. But the point I was making is that while it's certainly possible for the church to challenge the authorities and for people to join the church in its resistance to ridiculous rules, what you don't have is 
a theological consensus, either in society or actually even among churchgoers, of the sort that might build a renewed Orthodox Christianity. Because every opinion poll carried out for decades shows that even the opinions of churchgoers are remarkably sort of negotiable and flexible and not terribly rooted in the Nicene Creed. Yeah, well, I agree with that. I mean, you're you're quite right. You've described the nature of the current crisis, which is that for um, for a very long time, the theology of modernism, the increasing secularization of Christian categories, the diminishment of metaphysics, the increase of political priorities, all these things have denuded Christianity of its essential character. And we have a, a very much weakened laity, <laughs> very much weakened clergy and, and episcopate who have been trained to be secularized. And it's going to be a huge shock. I mean, if you were to say to any of the bishops or the priests who are, who are taking responsibility of decisions today, what are you going to do? Are you going to put health and safety culture first of all? And, and the, the, the witty Boris Johnson approach to the science first, or are you going to put the priority of the mass and of prayer and of meeting together in a sane and safe way as Christians and the other half of the scientific consensus? 95% are going with the health and safety culture and with the trust of, of government advice. And that seems to me to be demonstrating exactly what you said. We have a crisis of the deepest proportions and it's every, it's got to do with uh, any sense of the priority of the supernatural any sense of the priority of heaven and hell and of judgment and a willing and loving carelessness with our mortality. Of course, we don't have the right to be careless with other people's mortality, but we're called to be careless with our own if it's in the service of the gospel. Let me tell you a little story which it might indicate that there is a way forward for enterprising parishes of whatever denomination But I wouldn't want to extrapolate from that a message that the crisis is not as severe as it is, because I think it's of unimaginable proportions. But the church opposite me has reacted to COVID in a very unusual way. It's a Catholic church. And what it's done is that from 8 o'clock in the morning to 6.30 in the evening, every single weekday, it has exposition of the Blessed Sacrament and the doors wide open. And this has been drawing people into the church in a way that I haven't seen in the 20 years that I've lived opposite it. And I felt not only encouraged by this, but I have been physically drawn into the church simply by walking past and seeing what Catholics believe is the living God on the altar. And it almost feels rude not to go in. And I hugely admire the parish priest and the other priests in that church community for taking that step. But they've had to take that step in the knowledge that their diocese doesn't really approve. And I almost get a faint whiff of an underground church when I visit a number of parishes, a minority of parishes that have responded creatively to this unanticipated and shocking challenge. And I use this phrase, underground church. We hear an awful lot about the underground church in China, which has been so disgustingly betrayed by Pope Francis. I'm beginning to wonder if we're not entering a period where maybe it's time for Orthodox Christianity to, in a sense, 
go underground, that is, remove itself insofar as is theologically possible from the oversight of the bishops who are destroying it in league with secular authorities. This strikes a very strong chord with me. In, in the early 1980s, one of the things I did was to carry theological books in suitcases uh, in, into Prague in order to help the Catholic underground church prepare and ordain priests. And Eliot has this wonderful phrase, in the, um, in the end is our beginning, the beginning is our end. I'm surprised to discover that, that we're faced with the prospect of cons even considering the existence of an underground church at this stage. But, but having said that, um, as a matter of personal resonance, I think you're right. And what we're faced with is practice and principle. Now, in a way, maybe that the worst of the crisis in practice is behind us. The thing that broke my heart and profoundly offended me was the churches being being closed and the mass. Um, well, the mass continued in Catholic churches behind closed doors, thank God. But but it, it didn't continue in Anglican churches to, to I think their 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 serious uh, their serious disadvantage. But so long as the churches the doors stay open and the mass is continued and the blessed sacrament is exposed, then the crisis of practice may be over. But the crisis of principle remains. Um, the church is not is still not yet convinced that the immortal, the supernatural, uh, the eternal take priority over the temporal uh, and the mortal. And it could very well be actually that if one was a bishop or a priest, this terrible moment in our social life, societal life together, is exactly one where we can begin to talk more freely about what Christianity really is. It, it, it provides, uh, in an atmosphere of horrible fear that the pandemic has developed, and I have to say the government is, ex is exacerbating and encouraging, Christianity provides the most wonderful reassurance and peace uh, in the face of this terrible existential threat. So, so one of the first things we can do is say to a, to a society that's becoming increasingly paranoid and anxious, you don't have to be. We have a different understanding of the human task. So again, I think the churches will divide into those that respond to the crisis and the judgment by getting closer to the gospel and our, our roots and those that remain content to be a part of a health and safety culture and to be closed down as as being simply a, a, a religious recreational arm of the state to which nobody attaches much importance. But the problem is, Gavin, that they will divide, as you rightly say, down the middle of great historic denominations, which, by the way, was something predicted by the great uh, American sociologist James Davison Hunter in his 1990 book, Culture Wars that the lines of division would run within denominations rather than between them. And so what you would have, in effect, in the Catholic and Anglican churches are those parishes which operate what I would call an underground policy and those that go along with managed decline. And by underground, I don't really mean the catacombs. Don't forget that in China, the underground church has worshipped openly for quite a long time. It's just that they do so in the face of terrible disapproval and all sorts of horrible sanctions, which are now tragically endorsed by the Vatican. We have talked in the past often, for understandable reasons, about the Catholic Church. I would like to know more about the Church of England, in which you were a clergyman for many years, with which you remain on good terms. And I know that you're very friendly with lots of you know, well-connected vicars and other quite senior church officials who have been telling you 
what the reality is like on the ground. And I wonder if you could just spell it out for me. Yes, I mean, if I, first of all, I, I can say that isn't it interesting that the sociological analysis matches the eschatological one, so that within Catholic spirituality, the uh, the, the, the same message, for example, through the Marian uh, visitations, has come as the one provided by the sociologists. So we ought to take we ought to take note, and that is that the way in which the church is going to divide is going to be along different lines. I think the reason why that's so difficult to understand is our, our minds are set retrospectively in the in the historic framework left to us by the Reformation, which makes us think in terms of Catholic and Protestant. Um, but you quite rightly say that uh, there's a different division that we have to face now. And I think it's probably between the secular and the spiritual, between the supernatural and uh, the material. And so inevitably, uh, that split is going to divide the Catholic Church in one particular way and the Anglican Church in one particular way. Uh, I'm not sure how the rest of the Protestant churches are going to manage it because they're kind of predicated uh, on an accommodation with with a, a secular, non-supernatural view of the world. But, but it will affect the Pentecostals. And so you're right, each major church body will find itself being divided along this line, which I think is probably best described as as the secular versus the supernatural. It's all about metaphysics. In in the Church of England, the, 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 the problem is there's been such a change. The, the latest, there were, there were two releases of, of the metaphysical view, I suppose. Well, there have been three, haven't there? There's been the Wesleyan revival, the Anglo-Catholic revival, the Tractarians, and then the Charismatic revival. And each one of them has has involved exactly what we're talking about now, this injection of the supernatural, this calling back to, to radical to Christianity to the roots. The trouble is they've all died down in the Church of England now. The, the charismatic movement has been domesticated and um, somewhat, um, not exactly ridiculed, but, but certainly tamed. Uh, the Anglo-Catholic movement in the Church of England is... Well, I, I don't want. I, I, I won't say anything about it because my friends are still there and, and, and I, I would find it difficult to, to to maintain the required levels of politeness. Well, let me perhaps say what's at the back of your mind, which is that the Anglo-Catholic movement is dead. It turned up its toes quite a long time ago. It sacrificed its principles and is as thoroughly Protestant as St. Helens Bishopsgate or any other hardline Protestant part of the Church of England. But that's my personal view. Well, I've been reflecting on this in the last few months in particular, and I, I, I think it's very difficult to describe yourself uh, either adjectivally or as a noun as being Catholic, if you if you continue to refuse reconciliation with the Pope and, and the Mother Church, um, I mean, the, the, you know, you can't be Catholic if you do that. So, one one I think one has to find a different a different uh, description of it. And the evangelical group, of course, in a very interesting way, over the last thirty years, has been seduced by secularism. It's been extraordinary to watch it. Uh, there was a great revival in the 1960s on the back of Billy Graham and then in the 70s with John Stott and David Watson uh, and to some extent Americans like 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 Wimber came over and strengthened it. Festivals like Greenbelt um, straddled a number of interest groups and then since the 1980s, I think partly because there is no magisterium, there is no agreed means of finding an authority to challenge the permanent magnetic pull for accommodation with secular society. It has become more secular and bought entirely, this is Justin Welby, bought entirely into the 
sexualized and secularized interpretation of, of the human condition. So the trouble is there isn't any, there is no platform within the Church of England for um, the renewal of the supernatural to be built upon, or there is no seedbed, whichever metaphor you want to use. And in that sense, I'm terribly sorry to say, but I mean, I look at it and I wonder, how could it be reformed and revived? How can a new supernaturalism take root when none of the areas in which it has happened in the past will accommodate it anymore? Well, let me come to the defence of the Church of England for a bit and say that, in my opinion, there are evangelical churches that vigorously and imaginatively preach the gospel, such as Holy Trinity Brompton. And I think one of the tragedies is that Justin Welby, who was nurtured in that church, has not carried forward its message into Lambeth Palace. Even if you don't find its churchmanship appealing, you, I have seen Nicky Gumbel and that congregation close up, and I can see that it is vibrant and one of the last churches, I think, to wither in this crisis. But there are also lots of very, very good Christians, not especially dogmatic, both lay and clergy, in the Church of England, who are finding themselves utterly defeated by the awful confluence of the financial crisis already facing the Church of England and Welby's managerial determination to shut down debate and shut down parishes. I wonder if you just give me a picture of what life is going to be like for the average Church of England clergyman or, or clergywoman in the coming years, can the infrastructure be sustained? Yes, well, you quite rightly have brought me from from being critical about categories to, be, to being reminded about the heroism and the quality of many people. And so thank you for doing that, because it might be thought that because I didn't say it, I, I don't share your views entirely. I do. Uh, there's no doubt at all that within the Church of England there are, if you like, islands of, of holiness, commitment, imagination and, and heroism. The problem is, and this is what, what I was trying to get to with the categories, is there is no means of defending them or organising them or binding them together in the form of a movement. And so some of them will survive as marvellous congregationalist examples. But here's the paradox. The only way that they can, they can survive is by following a congregationalist model in an Episcopal church. So some of them will indeed survive, you're quite right, and one hopes that as many as possible can and will. However, the more supernatural they are, the more hostility they, they provoke from the, from the bureaucratic secularists who run the church and who organise the finances. I think the picture that's beginning to emerge is that my, my, my well-placed friends tell me that a third of the cathedrals are teetering on bankruptcy, another third have half a dozen years of solvency and not much not obvious ways of turning it round, and, and the final third are very well endowed and will survive almost anything that the economy throws at them. In churches, the pattern for the Church of England, now that it's ordained women, is to find that it's very reliant on a noble army of middle-aged, part-time women who take some responsibility for allowing small, beleaguered communities to tick over. But that's that's a pretty restricted vision of church and what it's meant to be. And so... The parish structure in the Church of England is going to disappear very quickly because the money simply isn't there. And the real decision that we have to be made by so many dioceses, do we declare this church a church that is open twice a year for harvest festivals and, and Christmas? Or do we close it down and mothball it or sell it? 
I think given the demographics of the fact that the average age is about 70 now and there's a large group of clergy, about a third, I think, are due to retire round about now, that it's simply run out of people and money and time. What will be left will be the icing on the cake, some of the, the abbeys, St Paul's, some of the cathedrals, certainly the bureaucracy, who've got a very rich cushion in terms of church commissioners' money to rely on to keep them going. A, a, a bit like police stations in the community or some GP's surgeries. When you look for a local expression somewhere near you to have access to, it may be very thin on the ground indeed. You use the word congregationalism, and I think it's an absolutely crucial concept right now. The Catholic and Anglican churches were not congregationalist. In other words, parishes were not self-sustaining units who operated independently of the rest of the church. To an extent, I think the Catholic Church, too, faces what you might call the congregationalist threat, or even perhaps the congregationalist opportunity, in that I think only successful parishes will survive. And by successful, I mean those that are run by priests who have a vision and the cultural and imaginative resources to communicate it to other people. Now, these churches are pretty thin on the ground. I'm lucky in London that there are a very significant number of them, and I live opposite one. But, for example, my sister has the misfortune to live in a Catholic parish where the priest, in addition to not taking the slightest interest in her health crisis, for which I can never forgive him, has simply posted these miserable, depressing lists of COVID restrictions on the front of the church. And mass there and in many other churches. It's almost like a, a crime scene. Bits of the church are cordoned off. And actually, that extends to Westminster Cathedral as well, which I think is a very, very badly run cathedral indeed. And you can see its authority bleeding away in the direction of the Brompton Oratory all the time. But that's open just for a, you know, two and a half hours a day, according to one priest was, was telling me. And there's nobody there. It's driving away people. So it's not congregationalist. It's losing its identity. And of course, helping that along by dismantling the choir. So that even in the Catholic Church, it will require a sort of congregationalist impulse for the body to survive. And that is not the church that we have known for the last 1500 years, is it? I think what you're doing is you're, you're I mean, you're, you're describing the, the bit of the Catholic Church you just described is that part which has most accommodated itself to the, the thrust of Vatican II. Now, I mean, Vatican II means uh, many different things. And I don't want to slip into the too obvious blunder of being for or against it. That would be much too clumsy. But one of the things that it is, it is evident is that the traditional Catholic movement is the one movement that is attracting young people. The Latin mass turns out to be a very significant magnet, a, a rediscovery of the transcendent, the supernatural, the historic character of the church seems to have some magnetic draw to a society that has been wholly starved of these things. Now, I don't know whether that will be enough to revive the whole Catholic Church, but there's no doubt at all that it's one area of serious growth and interest. And so in that sense, I think that's the answer to your, your anxiety about congregationalism. My sense is that where the Catholic Church rediscovers itself in its most authentic 
uh, and profound embodiment, both liturgically and aesthetically, it will find itself being renewed. It's exactly the opposite. It's exactly where you try and implement a secularized view of the church that you end up by, by, by putting together a bunch of sort of sociological clubs trying to you know make nice and be friendly but the fact is the church has never been attractive as a club uh, other clubs amateur opera societies bowling clubs have always done it much better than the church has done the church is a place where people get together to meet and love one another but primarily in the shadow of prayer and worship which comes first so i think where the catholic church discovers a renewed transcendence there it becomes most truly itself and will have the greatest pull. I do think that what you say about the Catholic Church applies to a degree to the Church of England as well. The problem is that these revived parishes, which will not, I think, be geographical parishes, but rather gathered congregations, in other words, people will travel to a church that they like rather than the church that happens to be around the corner which they're supposed to attend, these revived churches could find themselves subjected to a degree of intimidation by the structures of the church itself. That's right. Will, will it provoke anger from the authorities? Well, it, de- it depends how much our bishops and our senior priests have a taste for the kingdom of heaven. But the problem is that these, I'm tempted to call them Vichyite bishops and clergy who are so actively cooperating with governments all over the world and shutting down acts of worship don't actually think that they're suppressing the gospel they do genuinely think in a misguided way that they're doing the right thing and that in a way is what makes the situation so deadly oh yes you're absolutely right now i like the term vichyite and and reichskirche is the equivalent from the the german historical context well i think the last time we talked i i apologized for saying that christianity was substantially gnostic and we're back there again there is a a born from aboveness there is a literacy of the holy spirit which if you don't have you can't understand where the wind is blowing from and where it's going to and what is what is effect is supposed to be you know it's just a fact of life that within an organization like the church you you will have and have always had people who get the spiritual authenticity and people who don't and actually sometimes you know sometimes we're not the best people even to tell the difference but that doesn't mean we can't say there's a difference there are two ways of doing christianity one works one is faithful one is congruent with the teaching of jesus and the other less so and one of the challenges one of the crises for every generation of christian is to try to make a distinction between the two both for ourselves personally for the key for which is repentance and for the church as an organization which requires a gift of discernment and sometimes courage and sometimes sacrifice. Can we just finish by talking about the feelings of anger that I'm picking up from so many Christians at the moment, feelings that they have been betrayed by their own hierarchy? I have never known a time when so many priests speak with such disdain, to put it mildly, of Cardinal Nichols or their local bishop, depending on who the bishop is, and indeed of the Pope, because they see the Pope vigorously cooperating with the genocidal regime. And it's as if a spirit of accommodation verging on cowardice is stalking Christianity at a time when Christianity is actually being persecuted more vigorously than it has been for decades. 
this is really, really bad. And I think we need to call out these bishops and cardinals and popes, one pope in particular, for their cowardice. Yes, well, I'm not very, <laughs> speaking personally, I'm not very good with anger. I had to resort to psychotherapy to begin to, uh, to get a sense of how important it was to learn to handle anger creatively and properly and recognise it for what it is. But of course, the spiritual tradition has always been very clear that there are two kinds of anger. I mean, St Paul says, be angry, but don't sin. There is a kind of righteous anger. The stakes are high, though. It requires a great deal of perception to be able to tell the difference between one's personal rage and frustration, where one's own will to power is frustrated, and and a perfectly proper anger that we see our Lord expressing, where something beautiful is spoilt, where something truthful is twisted, where something wonderful is besmirched. And anger is the only proper response. So it takes getting it right. But I see that I would say then that this, this anger that you're feeling and picking up is one of the great signs of hope because it suggests that people have seen the situation for what it is and are responding with a perfectly proper sense of frustration and, and outrage and disgust, the kind of disgust that blasphemy, the real blasphemy produces in us. So the difficulty always is to learn how to be angry, I think, in principle and not to destroy or to wound or to attack people and that's a very fine line indeed and it's particularly problematic when we get angry with people who have a perfectly legitimate command on our respect and our obedience and I, I think at that point you know, it becomes you know very combustible and everyone needs a very good spiritual director. It's very very difficult Gavin as you say and if you read social media you can see what you might call righteous anger mixing with vicious, spiteful reactions to any story that comes along. There is, above all, I think, tremendous unhappiness. And for that, I think the leaders of the churches should be held responsible. I think that accountability by, by the bishops and the leaders is part of the contract of love that the Christian community enters into. Because to be a bishop, to be a leader in the church is to willingly take upon yourself a responsibility for the sheep. And if you look at the Old Testament in particular, the uh, responsibility for those who had pastoral care for God's sheep, God's children, is very high indeed. I think one of the things one has to say is that you know, the Lord will sort it out. Uh, ultimately, it's his problem. And I think we have to be careful not to compound confusion and cowardice with our own anger. As I said, I think this is immensely difficult and I'd be the first person to say that I have a lot of trouble every single day as I read social media. Uh, and as one hears different stories, and part of the problem is we don't have a grasp on all the facts or on, on, on the truth. So all of us, our knowledge is partial. And when you have partial knowledge, one has to be very careful. Well, perhaps, and I know this seems a very melodramatic way of putting it, a constructive response to that anger is for the church to go, in some senses, underground to find a way of worshipping in which people are liberated from bullying bureaucratic bishops who are essentially behaving like vandals. I don't think it's for me to comment on people's uh, vows of obedience to their, to their bishops, but I certainly would say that where the state begins to make wholly improper demands upon the church and upon the Christian conscience, then I think it is entirely legitimate 
to consider putting oneself out of the reach and the sight of the state in order to maintain one's fidelity to our Lord and the primacy of our obligations to God to whom we answer. Now the extent to which bishops side with the state in such a hypothetical crisis will of course vary in different circumstances but in terms of the state and the Christian conscience there's no doubt in my mind at all that having to go under crown may very well as the state ramps up its demands become increasingly inevitable. I think in the most elegant way you're sidestepping the question and I entirely understand why Gavin Um, We have seen the churches not only embrace but expand on the restrictions that have been placed on them, celebrating the restrictions. I think the bishops, and not the government, at least in this country, are the problem. And that does indeed put Christians in a very, very difficult situation. There are bad times coming. I think you're right. And if you remember, we agreed at the beginning of the conversation by saying that one of the things we didn't understand was the way in which the bureaucracy of the church seemed to delight in the health and safety culture that demanded the closure and the restriction of so much. It was authentic to the Christian vocation. Um, I still don't understand that. Perhaps it will become clearer as more pressure is put on the church. Gavin, thank you very much. And I'm going to have the last word and say something that I don't think you would wish to say or you're not in a position to say. And that is simply to say to the bishops, you wretched fools, can you not see what you're doing? 